This morning we continue our study of new life in Christ based on Romans chapters 5 through 8. New life in Christ includes freedom from condemnation, as we saw in chapter 5. It includes freedom from sin's dominion, as we saw in chapter 6. And surprisingly, it includes freedom from law, as we see beginning last Sunday in Romans chapter 7. But even before we get to chapter 7, the Apostle Paul has begun to hint that the law, this priceless treasure of God's people for centuries, has some limitations. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 20. The next verse goes on to say, A righteousness apart from the law has been revealed. God has a way of conferring a righteous status on unworthy sinners, what the Bible calls justification, that has nothing to do with our ineffectual efforts to keep the law. It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. That's from Romans 4, a chapter that we're not looking at closely in this series. The point of that chapter is that the overall argument of Romans, that we are made right with God by faith, not by our own efforts, is seen in the experience of Abraham, the father of God's chosen people. He enjoyed a relationship with God that was, apart from any law, centuries before the law was given. You are not under the law, but under grace. And that's Romans 6.14. Christ is the end of the law, so that there might be righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans 10.4. The law was added so that trespass might increase. Romans 5.20. Although the law can't make anyone right with God because it does not confer on us the ability to obey it, the law does play a crucial role in the history of salvation. The law was added so that the trespass might increase. This sin-exposing function of the law is fleshed out in Romans chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then, if she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law, were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, 
we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For what I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. Last Lord's Day, we looked at verses 1 through 6 and Paul's unusual illustration of death ending the law of marriage. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at verses 14 through the end of the chapter and Paul's description of someone struggling mightily with sin. Today, the verses in between, verses 7 through 13. Let's pray for God's help in understanding this text, and we'll sing our prayer. Would you stand as we sing? Would you take a copy of God's Word and turn to the text that we heard read, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. A psychologist at Penn State University ran an experiment in which she brought together, brings together groups of school-aged children and feeds them a, a large, healthy lunch, and then takes them into another room where there's a lot of junk food, a lot of sugary stuff, and observes what they do. Some kids full from lunch eat virtually nothing from the junk food selection. Others pig out. And what this psychologist has discovered is there's a connection between how much the kids eat of the junk food and how strict their parents have been in restricting their diet. The kids who have not gotten to eat very much sugary junk are the ones who tend to pig out. And as the psychologist unpacks this experiment, has found something very interesting. That the kids who go to town on the junk food tend to do so because they're convinced it must be better because it's forbidden. I think the Apostle Paul would like that story. Because in Romans chapter 7, he argues that sinful 
desires in us are aroused by the law. It's not just that we break God's law because we really kind of want to do what the law forbids. There is a sense, to some extent, where it's even worse than that. We want to do it because it's forbidden. It may be unhealthy. It might kill us. But we want it because it's bad for us. Now, Paul has said some surprisingly hard things about God's law, which for centuries had been the treasured possession of God's people. He says in Romans that the law cannot justify anyone in God's sight. Only the sacrifice of God's Son could do that. He says in verse 4 of this chapter that we are dead to the law. There's a sense in which the law belongs to the old era along with sin and death, and that Christians, Christ followers, are now living in a new epoch, a new chapter of their life story. And now, he says, the law arouses sinful passions. That doesn't mean that there's something wrong with the law. No, verse 7, he anticipates that kind of misunderstanding on the part of some of his hearers. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And then he uses the same strong Greek expression that he used back in chapter 6, which the King James Version translates, God forbid. Interestingly enough, neither the words God nor forbid appear in Paul's Greek. Nonetheless, the King James translators captured the sense of what he's saying. Certainly not. The law could not confer on Paul the justification that he desired, but it did at least expose the need for justification. It exposed the sin in his heart. And the same goes for you and me. We cannot be justified, made right with a holy God through the law and our efforts to keep the law, That's not why God gave the law. The law is good at something else. It exposes sin in us. Some sins are obvious, like murder. But sins of the heart, like coveting, Paul's example, are not so obvious. And yet, coveting often gives birth to jealousy, theft, deceit, even murder. And Paul would not have known that this inclination of his heart was sin if not for one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not covet. The law came along and showed him something that he wouldn't have otherwise seen. Another preacher, Paul Borden, invites you to um, imagine that you go to work for a new company and in the period of orientation to your new job, they, they leave something out. And after you've been there for a few weeks, you encounter a new situation and uh, it wasn't covered in the orientation, but you're tired of going back again and again to your manager. You don't want to um, look like a dummy You want to show some initiative, so you figure out a way to handle this 
situation. And over the next few months, every time that situation arrives, you do what you think is right. But then your manager comes along and observes what you're doing. He says, whoa, 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 no, 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 you're not supposed to be doing that. You say, but it works. I figured this out. The manager says, yeah, maybe you did. Maybe it works for you, but you're not taking into account what happens in sales department or in accounting or in the, in the plant. You need to do it a different way and gives you uh, new procedures. And you come to realize that in terms of the company's policies, you've been sitting, not following the correct procedures. The Apostle Paul would say that that manager is kind of like the law, showing you where you're going wrong, where otherwise you might not have known it. But then Paul Borton goes on to say, if you're like me, and we are like him, something else happens when the manager comes along and says, no, don't do it that way, do it this way. Chafe. We don't like that. We have figured things out. We like our way. And when the manager leaves, the temptation is strong to do it the way we've been doing it the last three months. Why? Because there is something deep down in all of us that responds negatively to being told what to do, that responds negatively to law. And that something within is sin, not the discrete acts of sin, individual sins, but sin, you might say, with a capital S. Sin as a power, almost as a personality. Verse 8 of this chapter, Paul says, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. He wouldn't have known what coveting was or that it was wrong if it hadn't been for the law. But sin, this twisted power, comes along and uses God's law to promote coveting in Paul's heart. And Paul's not alone on this. A smoker sees a non-smoking sign and starts to crave a cigarette, even though she wasn't even thinking about smoking. If a store in downtown Chicago posted a sign, do not throw rocks at this window, the window wouldn't last 24 hours. There's a scene in James Michener's novel, Hawaii, that illustrates uh, the weakness that Paul is talking about in any law-based religion. Abner Hale, a 19th century missionary, is trying to help Hawaii's nobility form some much-needed rules. And, and one of the rules that he insists on is no adultery. But which adultery, they ask? In Hawaii, we have 23 different kinds of adultery. You what? Abner gasps. And, and this would be our problem, they, they explain. If we were to just say simply, there shall be no adultery without indicating which kind, everyone who heard would say, oh, well, that rule must be talking about other kinds of adultery, not our kind. On the other hand, if we list all 23 kinds, one after another, somebody will surely say, Never heard of that before. Let's try that one. 
And I can imagine the Apostle Paul liking that story. He confessed in this letter, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. I wouldn't have known what coveting was if the law hadn't said don't covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the law, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Abner Hale couldn't solve that problem of the human heart, but um, only life in the Holy Spirit can do that. That's Romans chapter 8. But he solved his immediate problem with this felicitous wording which the Hawaiians understood perfectly, thou shalt not sleep mischievously. (laughs) Now, there's nothing wrong with the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. There's nothing wrong with the commandment, thou shalt not covet. But there is something wrong with Hawaiians and with the Apostle Paul and with you and me. Sin seizes the opportunity afforded by the law and produces in us sinful desires. Verse 8 again. Apart from the law, sin is dead. Verse 9, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For centuries, readers of Romans have wondered whether Paul is being autobiographical here or whether he's just using uh, the personal pronoun I to make his argument more vivid. In other words, um, I might, for a sermon illustration, say, so I'm driving down I-95 and a Humvee cuts me off. What words do you think come immediately to my mind? When, in fact, I've never been cut off on the highway by a Humvee. I'm not describing something that happened last week or or really ever in my memory. I'm just using I, personal language, to make the illustration more vivid. Is that what Paul is doing here? Although it's possible, I don't think so. I think that his testimony here and in next week's portion of Romans 7 is so emotionally authentic, so intensely personal... I think he's describing his experience. Not autobiography in the sense that if we could find Paul's diary, we could pinpoint the day and the hour that the commandment came and he died spiritually. Uh, But he did experience what the law does well. It exposes sin and shows us how sinful sin is. Law does that very well. Paul would have been as self-satisfied as the new employee who doesn't like the manager's suggested change unless the law had come along and showed him to be a sinful coveter. Paul would have been just fine like Bill Wimmer of Arkansas before he drove into the light. Bill and his wife were driving for hours in the dark on roads that didn't have a lot of businesses or a lot of streetlights, but then they came to a 
a stop where there was some light, and their three-year-old boy in the back seat, Micah, said, Ew, look at all the dirt. And sure enough, on the windshield was all the dead bugs and grime from the road for the last several hours. And uh, Bill wouldn't have thought anything of it, except that when they started off again and drove into the dark, Micah said, now it's all clean. Paul would say that the law is like the light. Apart from the law, apart from the light, the dirt is hidden in darkness. But God gave the law and exposed all the dead bugs and dirt in our heart. Does that well. Now, Paul's language is even stronger. He doesn't say that the light of God's law just embarrassed him. It, it killed him in some sense. Reread verse 10. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life, and you can read the Old Testament and many places in the New Testament that celebrate the law as a good thing. It, those who live by it will live. The trouble is it does not confer the ability to keep it. The very commandment intended to bring life actually brought death for sin Seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. There's that same phrase that we read back in verse 8. Sin seized the opportunity afforded by the law. The problem is not with God's law, but with sin. This power so sinister that it can even use God's holy law against us. How does it do that? The answer is in that little expression, deceived me. Sin deceived me. Eat the junk food. It tastes better because it's forbidden. Or to Eve in the garden, eat the forbidden fruit. God does not want you to be like him. Or, what harm can it do? It's nobody's business but yours. No one else will know. God will forgive. That's his job. You're entitled. You're different. You have to find your own truth. The Bible is an ancient, outdated book, and a hundred other lies that sin tells us that deceive and kill us. Now again, in verse 12, Paul exonerates the law from any blame. So then the law is holy. The commandment is holy, righteous, and good. This answers the rhetorical question of verse 7. Is there something wrong with the law? No, certainly not. God forbid. We might think, okay, Paul, you've made your point that the law is not evil, but didn't I hear you say that the holy law nevertheless killed you? No, he answers, I said in verse 11 that sin making use of the law killed me. Did that, verse 13, which is good, 
then become death to me? By no means. It's again that strong answer. Certainly not. God forbid. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, the law produced death, or it, it that is sin produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment sin might become or be seen as utterly sinful. The, sin, the law cannot save you, but it's really good at showing you you need to be saved. The law cannot make you virtuous, but it's very good at showing you that you need to be made virtuous. The law cannot justify you. Romans 3.20, no one will be made righteous in his sight by keeping the law, but the law is very good at showing you you need to be justified. The law can't sanctify you either, as we'll see in the next few weeks, especially when we get to Romans 8, but the law is very good at showing you how you need to be sanctified, made holy. And that's a valuable service. We need to be shown that we need a Savior. We need to be shown how far we fall short of the glory of God. We need to be shown that we cannot be justified by our own best efforts or be made holy by keeping any law. We need to be shown this. And it hurts to be shown this. We don't like the law to expose our sinfulness. There's shame and regret and sorrow in knowing, but not knowing is worse. Paul, looking back on sin's impact on his life, says it, it put me to death. And in next week's text, he'll say, what a wretched man I am. But incalculable harm comes to the soul and to the family and to the church and to the culture when we don't recognize our sin how odious it is to a holy God, how destructive it is of relationships, and insidious cancer. And if we don't realize that we have it, we won't let the divine physician begin the cure. Brennan Manning describes his experience in an alcohol rehab program He'd been there for a few weeks when one of the exercises was everybody sitting in the circle had to begin telling the group and the leader the truth about their, their experience. And most everybody was pretty honest except for one businessman named Max who, um, when asked about his drinking, said, I never really drank that much. Somebody said, Max, you're in an alcohol rehab program for a month. Come on. He said, no, I, I really never drank that much. Well, they had all signed an affidavit, including Max, allowing the group leader to get whatever information he needed to help them understand this person's journey. And so Max, um, the leader, said, I'm going to call uh, the bartender near where you work. And um, so he rang, bartender answered, and the leader said, uh, do you know a Max so-and-so? 
The guy said, oh, yeah, like a brother. He comes in every day after work and has at least six martinis. He's one of our best customers, uh, an avid consumer of alcohol. Max says, okay, yeah, I guess sometimes I drank a lot. And then a few minutes later, the question for everybody in the circle to answer was, um, have you ever hurt anybody while drunk? And people told their stories. Some people, it was evident they were being honest, um, had said, thankfully, I've never hurt anybody while I was drunk. And Max, when it was his turn, said, I have four children and a wife I love dearly. I would never hurt them. I would never hurt anybody while drunk. And the leader said, Max, we don't believe you. I'm going to call your wife. Well, as soon as his wife picked up the phone, Max began sweating. He knew something bad was, was coming. Leader said, um, this is um, so-and-so at the rehab center. Um, Max signed an affidavit giving us permission to ask you questions. Um, has he ever hurt anybody because of his drinking? She said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, he, he has. Last Christmas Eve, he went out with our daughter to do some last-minute shopping, and he bought her a, a pair of new shoes that she really liked. And he, He's a generous guy. Uh, but on the way home from the mall, he saw some of his friend's cars at the bar, and he pulled in the parking lot and said to our daughter, um, I'll only be a few minutes. You just enjoy your new shoes, and then I'll be back. And it was a frigid, cold day. He rolled up the windows tight, so that she wouldn't get cold, and he went into the bar, and he came out hours later. The doors and windows were frozen shut so that this little girl had not been able to open them. When the police came and opened them, the little girl was so badly frostbitten that when they took her to the hospital, she had to have two fingers removed. And the damage to her ears was such that she would probably be deaf for the rest of her life. And Max crumbled on the floor, convulsing. Paul says, that's what the law does. Tells us the truth about ourselves. It makes us face what we otherwise wouldn't know or wouldn't face. God's holy and just law exposes our desperate need for a divine Savior. And that's a good thing. Will you pray with me? Our Holy Father, some of us who may not have experienced exactly what Max experienced have nonetheless known the pain of somebody, maybe a spouse, maybe a preacher, maybe a gospel tract, maybe a passage in a novel, but somebody putting their finger on the ugly truth about ourselves. Thank you. 
Thank you that in your severe mercy, you do not let us go through life self-satisfied, content, thinking that all is right with us and the world, and then on the judgment day, too late, facing the truth. Thank you that through your word, including the law, you show us what we need to see, as you did for the Apostle Paul. I pray for myself and all who hear me that you will not allow us to shut our ears to this truth, that you will not allow us to close our eyes to this truth, but to realize how gracious and merciful you are being to us when you shine the light on our sin. And, and I can almost imagine that some listening, because I know something about the times in which we live, some might be saying, oh, all this sin talk, all this sin talk. These Christians, these church people, it's, it's all they, they're obsessed with it. But when we're thinking straight, we know how good it is when we follow you in using this language because your word promises healing for every sin, forgiveness for every sin. Your son died on the cross for every sin. So when we acknowledge our sin, we're well on the way toward the healing and wholeness that you offer. Well, I don't want to turn this prayer into another sermon. I'm just praying that you'll help us all to see the truth that we wouldn't otherwise see. To embrace it with all our hearts and then in the rest of this life and throughout eternity, be praising you wholeheartedly for the provision you made for the salvation of unworthy sinners. In the Savior's name we pray and let all his people say, Amen.